Good day. You're tuned into Free City Radio. This is the 37th edition of the podcast, and it is Tuesday, the 13th of April. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe, in Montreal. It's a beautiful spring day here, and I'm happy to share another edition of the podcast with you. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you're all doing well. Um, today on the show, I wanted to uh, feature a voice um, on the Philippines. This is um, a filmmaker, an activist, uh, who's based in London uh, and has created a, a really important film uh, this past year called The Mortician of Manila. Uh, the film explores uh, the human impacts of the current, quote-unquote, war on drugs in the Philippines, uh, the ways that marginalized communities, uh, the poor, urban poor, and also rural communities are affected by uh, a policy of zero tolerance on the part of the populist right-wing government of Duterte in the Philippines. Similar to other uh, examples in the world where this uh, phrase, the war on drugs, has been used, um, in the Philippines, the war on drugs has meant violence, social violence and political violence, targeting communities that have already been struggling with generations of systemic marginalization. Um, the Duterte administration has used in many ways the cover of, quote-unquote, the war on drugs to enforce uh, violence and also to displace communities, specifically um, uh, rural communities that are peasants, um, also landless um, communities where people have taken uh, decisions to uh, reclaim land, uh, and also just generally the war on drugs has been used uh, as part of the process of militarization that has targeted many progressive movements in the Philippines, both urban and rural. Lea Borromeo is an awesome filmmaker uh, who's based in London. As mentioned, uh, she worked on the film Mortician of Manila. It was featured on Al Jazeera uh, globally and was uh, shown across North America through the Cinema Politica network. I thought it was important uh, to speak with Leia at this moment in April 2021 uh, because there has been a recent push on the part of the Duterte administration to um, not only uh, use the discourse of the war on drugs, but also to openly uh, threaten and to uh, use violence against progressive social movements in the Philippines. Of course, the Philippines is a very important uh, space where uh, peasant movements and uh, workers' movements, uh, movements of the urban poor, have been working for so many years uh, through organizations like Anacapawis, uh, Bayan, Gabriela, um, different uh, formations to try to uh, create a process of transformative social change. And I think Leia's work really speaks to the intersections of the ways that uh, that conflict between the state under Duterte and also, of course, under previous administrations, um, uh, the ways that that intersection translates, especially for um, communities uh, struggling with systemic marginalization uh, in the city. Uh, Mortician of Manila explores uh, basically the life of an undertaker in the Philippines 
and uh, he is dealing with grieving families um, who have been victimized by this war on drugs. Um, the film is also beautiful. Uh, artistically, it's shot in an awesome way. And uh, this is a great opportunity to hear um, perspectives on what has been happening in the Philippines today. Here on Free City Radio, here's my conversation with Lea Borromeo. I'm joined by filmmaker and journalist Lea Borromeo, uh, who is in London and um, produced this past year a really important uh, film. It was airing throughout the past year um, called The Mortician of Manila, uh, looking at the human impacts of the war on drugs in the Philippines, um, broadcast on Al Jazeera's program Witness. Also, um, Leia's been tracking the political situation in the Philippines in relation to the pandemic and uh, sort of the intersections of the ways that systems of violence have been impacting marginalized communities in the Philippines. And I thought it would be uh, important to get a sense of where things are at beyond the headlines uh, right now. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Stefan. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Leo. So um, just for people to get a sense of what's been happening, um, mm. there there are two main topics I was hoping to address today. Um, maybe we can start with um, looking at sort of a follow-up to this, this film that you worked on called The Mortician of Manila. There's been this sort of shift in political discourse in the Philippines uh, mm. over the last few months where this discourse around the war on drugs has sort of translated or passed over and gone towards um, uh, an attack, an open sort of political rhetorical attack against progressive movements. And there seems to be a connection there. Uh, and there's a lot of threats taking place to uh, social movement leaders. Um, could you give us yeah. a bit of context as to what's been happening? I mean, especially like in, in when you actually mentioned things like attacks on, on Bayan, for instance, and also a lot of the sort of reprisals on anybody who are like university leaders, for instance, who decide to activate and galvanize some form of resistance against the current government or the current status quo. This, this seems to be a common thread throughout most of Philippine history. I mean, the foundation of the Philippines is based on people who didn't necessarily agree with the system of government that they had. And then, you know, it's just, it, it it's constantly feels like in the Philippines, you're, you've got somebody who wants to revolutionize something, who wants to have a revolution, who wants to have some form of progression, the progressiveness. But then when you have some kind of an election towards progressiveness, or even as close as you can get to a centrist government of some sort, it turns into a kind of neoliberal orgy. And again, the very same people who have been fighting for equity will end up again impoverished and left behind. And yes, you might be able to have some things like slightly nicer in terms of who makes your cappuccino, but you know, you need to be able to afford that first. And you know, at the at the end of the day, it's always the poor that always gets left behind. And this is a country that is probably best known for poverty and overseas foreign workers. And you know, I, you know I, I come from a country where, you know, the word Filipino is essentially you know, slang and sideline for a domestic helper. And what are the reasons behind that? You know, why are people 
attracted to or they're driven to work abroad in the service industries because they don't really have those opportunities at home and they, it gives them the chance to actually help lift their family out of poverty by working elsewhere, mm-hmm. by putting yourself at risk. Mm-hmm. So again, this is another thing that kind of stretches out to like Filipinos in the diaspora who work, let's say for here, for instance, here in the NHS, you know, with COVID, they were possibly one of the hardest hit demographics uh, in terms of deaths and fatalities because a number of people from the Filipino diaspora are frontline medical workers, frontline care workers, you know, people who are out there in the face of it. And that is also something that, you know, Anybody who's like socially progressive within the Philippines will, will end up fighting for their rights, be it in the UK or be it over in the Philippines. And for some reason that upsets power. And within the Philippines, I think there's a kind of drive to retain power at any cost. And we mentioned earlier something about language. I think that's quite useful. The language around killings and the language around Duterte, for instance, how he got elected, you know, elected on this platform of, you know, calling himself Duterte Harry, uh, co-opting action movies, co-opting Hollywood, co-opting the, you know, the the big bad gunslinger who's going to take it to the show. Mm. That kind of language, that Mm. toxicity, that toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. is something that he got elected on and he's riding the wave of it. Mm -hmm. And all of his, you know, all of his droogs, if you want to use another popular culture reference, all of his droogs also ride on that wave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I don't think to them, ultimately, that this is real. You know, I do think that this is a role that they're playing. I think that this is something that mm. it's, it's kind of a little bit of a Truman show for them, you know, because these effects aren't actually grossly real to them. Mm-hmm. the effects of, of, of their policies, the effects of actually impoverishing people mm-hmm. and the effects of wanting to actually just pulling out a policy to, to kill on site and to kill at will, you know, is especially when you come from the class that Duterte actually comes from and a lot of his, a lot of his droogs, it's not reality for you. You know, you can afford to live in, with relative impunity. And the only people who can really kind of you know, show you a lesson, I suppose, would be somebody just equally as nasty as you are or nastier. It's that it's, you know, it's, it's ever escalating. And again, we mentioned before something about the Philippines also being a country of extremes in many ways. Mm-hmm. And it is that it's, you know, it's, I bring a gun to this show and I'm going to, you know, here's my nuclear bomb. <laughs> it's just kind of, and, wow. and it, it it's, it's really, it's never really going to, I don't think in terms of argument, you know, reasoning and rationalizing your way out of something isn't, isn't it's, it's difficult when the power structures are geared towards psychopathic megalomaniacs. <laughs> but in terms of psychopathic megalomaniacs, uh, Duterte being one of them, can, can you just uh, explain for people or share share I mean what just what is the war on drugs in the Philippines today I mean people remember the headlines from two years ago three years ago but it hasn't stopped I mean I've obviously not been able to travel uh yeah 
no one has. And, and, and my information is obviously all mostly just secondhand and is definitely secondhand from the people I know who still work that beat, as it were. Um, and they'd be much better placed to tell you what it really feels like and what it really is like there. But the, the images that I see in the stories that I hear, you know, there are some really weird ones where, you know, half the world has been wandering around, most of the world, unless you're in New Zealand, with a face mask on like this. And if you are a killer and an assassin, uh, it kind of serves your purpose to be wearing PPE, <laughs> not be recognized and still follow all COVID restrictions. So there have been stories about that, you know, around people being killed in the middle of the pandemic wearing PPE. It's like, you know, I'm just, it, it just, you know, you just don't, I can't square that circle, but then, you know, mm. I mean, those, those are, those are anecdotes that, that, that I've heard. Um, other stories that I've heard are that it's not really, it's not really gone away. It's, you know, it's not just that the enforcement of a drugs policy, it's now the enforcement of a COVID policy and the quarantine policy. Mm. And, you know, we, we mentioned the guy who, mm. I think it was doing 300 squats or something like that because he broke COVID um, regulations and, you know, eventually died or something, you know, and it's something like that is, is still, again, you know, it's just another excuse and another way for people to exercise some perverse form of bullying. Mm. And it's kind of, it's a very extreme form of bullying because it's actually enshrined in law mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's enshrined within the state. So you're given a license to do this. And you know, it sounds like a film, License to Kill. It's, it's, it's all of that. Yeah. Just, <laughs> it's... Wow. So, I mean, that's basically just, just, just to uh, point to this issue. I mean, the uh, paramilitaries and police connected to the government literally can have a license to kill uh, under the pretext of the war on drugs. Yeah. And, you know, people will have stories and people will talk. Um, and people can give you specifics and people can, you know, whatever, whatever they do. And there will always be like a million different sides to any particular event. But, you know, ultimately that is a license that they're given. And it doesn't really matter what story is told and what story is woven. The people who die and the people who are killed and the people who are assassinated, you know, are still killed and assassinated and dead. You know, it's just, there's no way of changing that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what purpose living in such a kind of lethal, <laughs> lethal environment actually serves is, you know, I, I don't know, but I, mm-hmm. I, I definitely think that there is definitely some kind of a way I think that Duterte and his goons perhaps kind of feel that they're laying the, yeah, sowing the seeds for maintaining power or some future power. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, elections are also coming up. And, you know, unfortunately for Duterte, you know, we're a country that has democracy. But fortunately for him, he knows how to rig it. So it's just, it's, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it is very much like, you know, try, no, there's no, I don't think many other countries in, in Southeast Asia like this. Um, there, there are a few that are close uh, when it comes to despots and, and murderous regimes. 
but the sheer kind of Hollywoodness of all of this, mm. um, back to that language, is something that I think is uniquely Filipino. You know, it's mm-hmm. we will. I don't know if you've seen this kind of viral video of the police dancing to a very camp, um, almost video game style song. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but it's yeah, hyper coordinated dancing, incredibly camp, and it's kind of like, but this is the police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they kill. It's like, you know, they, they Yeah, it's not cute. Yeah. It's really not that cute, but yeah. it's it's also incredibly hilarious because you just think of the ridiculousness of the situation that you're doing this incredibly happy, smiley dance. And who knows, within the next couple of days, you're just going to be putting a gun into someone's face. Maybe while you're dancing. It's just, wow. you know. Wow, wow, wow. Well, I mean, that's sort of like, it's it's just politically, if we think about the war on drugs in the U.S. or the ways that U.S. power was asserted um, through the war on drugs in Colombia and in Mexico, there is a sort of a, a hyperlinking of like economic interests and political interests, uh, corporate interests that are sort of um, given license through that sort of uh, extreme orientation of state power. Um, um, yeah. Can you, can you talk a bit about how that is going down in the Philippines today? Because they've sort of like gone from just a war on drugs, um, framework to also like a war on opposition, like a war on social movements. Oh, hundred percent. And that war on opposition and war on social movements is something that we've seen, you know, in the flavor of Ferdinand Marcos back in the eighties and the seventies as well. Yeah. And it's also a war on journalism. It's a war on creative expression. Um, it's 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 basically a war on anything that kind of any of the fun like the foundations of civil society. And this is one of the like you know the, the fundamental parallels that you have with Duterte is one it's it's just like Marcos but on steroids. Two, it's also a little bit like most Latin American countries, if you follow, especially when you bring in things like Colombia mm-hmm. and you follow the war on drugs uh, or the so-called war on drugs from America, it's, it's kind of who benefits from this discord, who benefits from this chaos, you know, because that American war on drugs, you know, as it's, as years go by, it's becoming more and more apparent that it actually helped maintain certain power structures within the United States and it helped maintain certain wealth in, within the United States um, so that there wasn't a challenge to that wealth. There wasn't a challenge to that resource. And especially in places where the resources were left in such chaos that they couldn't govern themselves and they, couldn't, they could definitely not you know, control their own economic output. Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking about the Philippines in this way, like who stands to benefit from a Philippines that is in utter chaos? You know, who is coming in from the sides, taking bits of the Philippines, taking bits of, of, of that nation and that nationhood um, while, you know, they're busy fighting each other, while they're busy killing each other, while they're busy focusing on, you know, the small stuff effectively. It's not, it's not to diminish the fact that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are being murdered and disappeared um, and being oppressed by Duterte, but... You know, while we are, as Filipinos, just niggling over the small small things, who's coming in and taking, you know, benefiting, profiting mm-hmm. from this 
distress that we're in, you know, and, and that question I think definitely needs to be asked mm. and, and asked quite, you know, loudly. And it's, it's just, it's, it's not, it's no, it's not like marching on the street. It's not hosting a demonstration. It's nothing like that. But I think one of the loudest things that we can do is actually just ask who stands to benefit from our poverty, who stands to benefit from the fact that we are, you know, in fighting, um, mm-hmm. we're divided and we, you know, we have discord and who's making the money. And there are so many mining companies, Canadian mining companies included. Mm-hmm. Um, mining Watch Canada has done some really important tracking on this issue. Uh, also, also Australian mining companies. Uh, of course, multinationals have a lot of production uh, centers, uh, sort of like the equivalent of maquiladoras, uh, but in the Philippines. Um, so yeah, if, if, if you could just briefly um, highlight a bit more um, in that context, when we see the repression of social movements who are challenging that economic inequality, the ways that this sort of discourse and the violence of the war on drugs creates uh, that that framework that allows for multinationals to uh, reap benefits from the chaos yeah. that you're talking about. I mean, I remember a film that I made before the mortician, and it was for uh, actually uh, for a, a bunch of uh, activists within the Philippines who were campaigning for greater transparency within the mining industry. And mm. that, that's, um, you know, it does, it sounds like an oxymoron, but hey, it happens. And, you know, the, one of the focuses that we had in this film was on labor and what sort of labor is actually occurring within towns where mining companies have moved in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, previously where you had fishing communities and you had farming communities, you just had one job in town, which was mining. And that effectively just meant the men of the family and the household would be able to work. And the women may or may not be able to take the odd secretarial role, but actually they were pushed out entirely from the working environment Mm -hmm. and were pushed into either doing laundry or opening video key and karaoke bars where Mm -hmm. um, prostitution took place. Mm-hmm. And you know these mining companies would be there, and they'd have a lot of their ships off offshore, and they'd have their firms on the ground, and they would effectively, and quite literally, take what they wanted from the land, and also take what they wanted from the women um, of the land. And you know that was also a kind of parallel and a, and a strange little metaphor, I guess, mm-hmm. um, as to what is actually at stake uh, when these things happen. And it's also kind of pointed that you mentioned mining because that is one of the most dangerous places, I believe, to have a resistance. You know, people prior to Duterte, and this isn't exclusive to Duterte, to Duterte's government, but prior to him, you know, being a mining activist, was one of the most dangerous things that you could possibly be because you're not just going up against government. You're going up against capitalism. You're going up against, you know, big bucks here. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be highlighting and mm-hmm. working on any movement mm-hmm. that has any risk to millions and billions of dollars worth of money, mm-hmm. That's dangerous. Yeah. You know? yeah. That is much, much more dangerous than dealing with any individual man 
who happens to be in power. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're dealing with something much bigger than that. We're dealing with a hyper object that you cannot really, you know, put a face to mm-hmm. and, and fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, capital gains from this context in the Philippines um, globally. Um, thank you, Leah, for, for taking the time to outline all this. Um, really appreciate it. Um, your film, Mortician of Manila, is still up on Al Jazeera, uh, I believe. Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, yes, so yes. people should check that out. Um, Bulatlat also has, uh, Bulatlat.com has a lot of good information about the issues that, that you've been raising, an important independent media site there. So thank you so much for, for speaking with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me here. And, uh, and just as a kind of other side note on this one, the next film I'm, I'm going to be working on will likely tackle mental health issues within the Philippine diaspora. Wow. Uh, because of the violence that's actually being wrought on us as a nation and as a people, you know, certain things really need to be addressed, I believe. Well, I really look forward to seeing your next work and uh, really appreciated um, spending some time with your last film. So thank you so much. And thank you, Stephen. That was an exchange with filmmaker Leah Borromeo, uh, who's based in London. Leia is a filmmaker and uh, created a really important documentary this past year called The Mortation of Manila. You can find it on Witness, uh, the program of Al Jazeera. And it was really um, a pleasure to speak with uh, Leia uh, today uh, here on Free City Radio. This is the 37th edition of Free City Radio. And I'm your host, Stefan Christoph, here in Montreal. We uh, create a new episode every week. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast. Uh, just search Free City Radio on Apple Podcasts. All our archives are also up on soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. You can write me anytime at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Um, Again, this was the 37th edition of Free City Radio. We'll be back next Tuesday with another interview. Thank you for uh, taking the time to listen. I hope you're all doing well. It's a very difficult time. Um, Let's try to keep building. Let's try to keep supporting uh, progressive ideas and movements all around the world. And to finish the show today, I wanted to go... Um, to a piece of music from an upcoming project that I worked on. I'm really proud to share this. It is a project I work on called Rêve Sonar, uh, which is a collaboration with sound artist and musician Nick Schofield. Uh, the album will be coming out on Young Bloods Records, uh, based between Brooklyn and California, uh, later this month. This is a piece from the album called Swan Song. Thanks for listening to Free City Radio.
Thank you.